Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about how to get better, faster. I'm Ravi Gupta, and today we have an exciting guest, Ryan Craig, who's the Managing Director at Achieve Partners and was formerly the Managing Director at University Ventures. He's written in a bunch of different publications, and he's written some incredible books on the U.S. and global education systems, including a book that I'm going to ask him about today, which is called Apprentice Nation how the earn and learn alternative to higher education will create a stronger and fairer America. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Robbie, Good to be here. Well, this book is incredible, and I think it comes at an amazing time. But before we get into the state of apprenticeships in America, what is an apprenticeship and how is it different than an internship? Yeah, great question. Uh, a lot of people are confused about that, but it's very simple. An internship is a work experience hopefully paid, but too often unpaid, that a student will pursue in the course of his or her program of study. So you're enrolled in a typically degree program, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and over a summer or during a term, you're doing an internship with an employer, but then you return to your program. An apprenticeship is the opposite. It's not an educational program first. It's a job first. You get hired first by an employer and it's a full-time job. And the expectation is it's a permanent job. You're going to move from apprentice and then move into the company after you've completed your, uh, your, your apprenticeship. What they have in common is there's training involved. So uh, during an apprenticeship, uh, you have a built-in formal training, what's called related technical instruction. It's that literal, literally time in the classroom you'll be spending during your apprenticeship, as well as informal on-the-job training. But they're almost sort of the inverse of one another. And as I understand it, apprenticeships were way more common at the founding of our country, including they were central to some of the significant figures that created America, right? Well, right. Before we had uh, colleges and universities, there was really only one way to launch a career, and that was as an apprentice. So Benjamin Franklin was an apprentice. Thomas Jefferson was an apprentice. George Washington was an apprentice land surveyor. And it wasn't really until the mid-20th century that we decided as a nation that there would only be one uh, socially acceptable pathway to economic mobility. And that was not only just college, but really a four-year degree program in college. And by the 80s and 90s, that was, that, that was formalized. And so we as a nation have invested in the world's most developed infrastructure for what I call tuition-based career launch. We have dramatically underinvested relative to uh, every other developed country in what I call earn and learn infrastructure for career launch. And why, like, was there a conscious decision or this was just a result of the rise of, you know, perhaps the well-intentioned investment in and growth of colleges and universities in this country? Yeah, I think it's a lot of things. I think that after World War II, you had all these service members coming back and the GI Bill fueled the, the growth of colleges and and universities for sure. But I think that, you know, the idea of college is uh, really consistent with the American dream, right? You should be able to fulfill your potential to the greatest extent possible. You should be able to discover any world of knowledge and pursue your passions. It's consistent with the American dream. And I'm a big supporter of college. My very first job as a teenager was at a, as a college. My very first good job after law school was at Columbia University. But all the good that college does comes at a price. And if the price is too high, it doesn't make sense for you know a sizable proportion of the population. But right now, it's the only pathway. And in other countries, including Western countries like Germany, 
appear better at this than we do. Like by orders of magnitude are more both generous, I guess, from a government perspective, but also just as there's more of a norm, a professional norm of investing in apprentices. Is that right? Yeah. Order of magnitude is the right, is the right term. I mean, it's not just, you know, we're off by a little bit here. We are way behind on apprenticeship. So there are half a million, 500,000 civilian apprentices in the U.S., That's 0.3% of the workforce, and about 70% of those are in the building or construction trades. Uh, You compare that to the giants of Central Europe, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, they are 10 to 15 times better than we are. So instead of 0.3% of the workforce, apprentices comprise 3 to 4.5% of the workforce. That's probably not surprising. Those countries are sort of famous for their apprenticeship programs. But what is surprising is that countries like the UK, Australia, Canada, and France, which a generation ago looked a lot like the US on apprenticeship, namely small apprenticeship sector, mostly in construction, today, those countries are doing about eight times better than we are. And it's very common in those countries to launch a career now in financial services, healthcare, tech, logistics as an apprentice, whether or not you have a university degree. So we don't have that infrastructure. What's weird is every country you mentioned have healthy, in some cases, excellent university systems and systems of systems. So what's interesting is the presence of major internationally significant universities and colleges doesn't seem to be the only factor, huh? No, 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 it's it, it's not. And again, apprenticeships aren't necessarily an alternative. They could be additive, right? And, and I think we'll hopefully we'll talk about why it's important that we build this infrastructure, even for college graduates. But the reason really is that those countries have invested in earn and learn, and we have not. We spend as a nation over $500 billion a year on college. So that's federal and state money going to the 4,000 plus accredited colleges and universities every year. And that doesn't count the additional money that's being spent by the Biden administration on student loan forgiveness, for example. So 500 billion, and that compares with less than 400 million on apprenticeship or earn and learn. So it's over a thousand to one. And if you compare the support that an individual apprentice receives compared to an individual college student, for every dollar of public money the apprentice receives, the college student is receiving $50. So I don't know whether the right ratio is one to one, two to one, or 10 to one, but I'm pretty sure it's not 50 to one or a thousand to one. And I can tell you that every other developed country that we've just mentioned is an order of magnitude or more higher on earn and learn than the U.S. is. And so if you're looking at those countries, what can we learn from those countries? Because you know, my sense is they're not just focused on the trades, right? Their, their apprenticeship programs are pretty diverse and include all kinds of industries. In looking at those countries, where have apprenticeships been particularly successful and in the American sense, replicable for us? Well, so the answer is across the economy. So uh, tech, healthcare, financial services, you name it, there are apprenticeships in those countries. And the reason that they do well isn't that employers in those countries are more farsighted or more benevolent. It's that those countries have robust ecosystems of intermediaries who actually uh, do the work of setting up and running these programs. So these are organizations that are literally setting up and running apprenticeship programs for employers. So the incremental work that an employer would need to do to have an apprenticeship program or hire an apprentice is relatively little because they have that. So in Germany and Austria and Switzerland, those intermediaries are large chambers of commerce and unions whose role in running apprenticeships is actually written into law. So they're required to do it. 
and the government funds it. The UK and Australia did not have that infrastructure and recognized the central role played by intermediaries. They recognized that employers weren't going to set these up and run them themselves, that colleges and universities weren't going to set them up and run them themselves. They needed this third party, this, you know, this intermediary. And so they provided funding and attracted thousands of companies and nonprofits into the business of being apprenticeship service providers. So now in the UK, you have this ecosystem of 1,200 apprenticeship service providers running around, knocking on the doors of companies, offering to set up and run apprenticeship programs, and making it a very, a very light lift for companies uh, to say yes to apprenticeship. So you won't find in the UK a company of any scale that hasn't been approached by a bunch of these apprenticeship service providers. It's a thing, but it's not a thing here, right? You'd be hard-pressed to find an employer that's been approached by an apprenticeship service provider offering a turnkey apprenticeship program for them. It doesn't exist here. And the reason it doesn't exist is that we're not funding it. So in the UK, when an apprenticeship service provider like Multiverse goes to, say, Barclays Bank and offers to set up and run an apprenticeship program, Multiverse says, we will handle the recruiting we will handle the training. We will handle the coaching and mentoring. All you need to do, Barclays, is put this apprentice on your payroll at a lower apprentice wage, and we'll even help you manage the on-the-job training portion of it. And everything. And the Barclays says, great, well, what will your services cost us? And Multiverse says nothing because it's funded by the government. When Multiverse, which has now come over to the US, tries to sell Verizon on the same thing, Multiverse has to add at the end, oh, and it'll cost you a $15,000 per apprentice program fee because there's no public support for what we do. So that that's really what's missing here. And I think that part of the problem is that from a public policy standpoint, we've conflated apprenticeship with other workforce development and training programs. It's being funded out of the same bucket, but it's different. This is not just a train and pray program. It's a job. It's a job that has a tremendous return on investment for the apprentice. So we should be thinking about it differently, like every other developed country has. Yeah, it seems like what the other countries are doing is solving for a, a sort of collective action problem, which is like if I am training you, Ryan Craig, as the apprentice over at the branch, there's a lot of investment before you are actually helpful to us, but also you could leave at any point and you can go take that training over to our competitor. And unless there is a you know, collective, like whether it's to the chamber plus government, which you're describing, there's this collective investment where we all know we're, we're putting in for the same pot. And also I know that I'm not paying for a worker who might not pay dividends right away. It's a hard sell. Absolutely. You know, you can have a free rider issue with companies who don't have apprenticeship programs who then are poaching other companies' apprentices. There are ways to protect against that, Right. You can have things like training repayment provisions of employment agreements where an apprentice who tries to, to do that will be on the hook for some of the cost of the training that they've had. But there's no question that society benefits with every apprentice trained. This is not just a skills issue. It's increasingly an experience issue. We're seeing a, a massive experience gap that's about to explode as a result of digital transformation and AI. I think back to my you know first good job and think about all of the sort of grunt work and menial work I did building PowerPoint presentations that nobody looked at and so forth in that job. That's not going to, you know, people aren't going to be spending 30 hours a week in their first job doing that anymore. They're going to be spending an hour or two a week. AI will do the work and their employer is going to expect that they'll be doing higher value work with the rest of their time, higher value client work, higher value product work. But you can't do that without experience. And so we are already seeing, like in cybersecurity, 
good entry-level jobs begin to require years of experience. In cybersecurity today, entry-level jobs in a security operations center ask for uh, a CISSP certification, which is three to five years experience, because the old entry-level jobs where you didn't have to know anything have been automated away. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting bind. Like if there aren't enough jobs to get that experience, how are they going to fill them? Yeah, we need a new category of job, and that job is an apprentice. But unfortunately, the companies like Verizon or Barclays can't be expected to set up and run these programs themselves, just like because they don't run schools, right? Companies don't run schools. In my book, I begin referring to them as employers, and then I sort of stop myself and say, wait a second, they don't think about themselves as employers. <laughs> they're companies delivering a product or service. They're employers almost incidentally because they can't deliver the product or service without. Right. Yeah, if they could, they would. Yeah. Some of them are getting closer. And you mentioned something earlier, which is we do have some programs in this country to train the workforce. And in reading your book, it, it, I kind of had an aha moment because I come out of politics and I have heard more politicians that I can name talking about, oh, like we're going to train our way out of globalization and the loss of this job and yada, yada. And now I'm like, oh, this is where all that money goes that actually these bills that get passed is all these programs that are like, we're going to retrain the workforce or whatever. And part of what you describe is that these are not apprentices for the most part. And two is they're often not very effective. No, they're not. The train and pray programs that are developed by mostly community colleges that really aren't very close to employment or employers or understanding what employers are actually looking for. And even if they get it right on the skills side, they're not addressing what we just talked about, which is the experience side, right? I mean, you could imagine a world where everyone who completes any program at a college or university is getting you know, a paid internship that we talked about at the beginning, right, as part of it. But colleges aren't set up to do that, right? In fact, the two leading co-op programs in the country, Northeastern and Drexel, someone pointed out to me a couple of weeks ago that it's not a coincidence that those schools started out as night schools, right? They were sort of employer employment oriented from the beginning to be able to build those programs. It's not in the DNA of your typical college or university to be able to reach out to hundreds of local or national employers and arrange for internships for their students. You know, colleges and universities, their point of intersection with employers is this small office on the periphery of campus called Career Services. In the basement. My college was in the basement. Yeah. And it's not staffed by people who've worked in the industry as the students are trying to get jobs in. It's staffed by people who've worked in career services their whole life. So yeah, it's difficult. But again, I, I think that you know the idea that somehow we should be investing more in colleges and universities to solve this problem is wrong. We need to invest in this whole segment that uh, we've been ignoring, which is earn and learn, and specifically the intermediaries who build that infrastructure and have built it successfully in other countries. And if you're thinking of what's like an example of a career domain where the strength of apprenticeships over the traditional way we're treating it is, is really obvious, meaning when you compare pedagogically what the common experiences of a college student and their sort of entry into the workforce today versus what a well-designed apprenticeship would accomplish both for the employer and the employee. Yeah, I would say that most good first jobs are asking for discrete combinations of digital skills, platform skills, business knowledge, role knowledge. They obviously want someone who has critical thinking skills, problem-solving skills, communication skills. And I'm not suggesting that those skills don't develop over the course of a four-year degree program. Of course they do. But do you need them to be a Salesforce administrator? 
right? Or if you're going to go work as a Salesforce admin at a hospital system, could you apprentice and over the first three months of that apprenticeship, get a you know six-week primer on how healthcare in America works. And then six weeks, you get your uh, you know trailhead certification as a, as a Salesforce administrator and get to work and work for a couple of years and uh, develop a better understanding of your interests and capabilities and then make a more informed decision as to what post-secondary program you might apply to. I think many of the problems facing American higher education in terms of completion, affordability, employability stem from the fact that the students who are most at risk, you know, low-income, underrepresented, first-generation students, they're dealing with this, this huge information problem when they make an enrollment decision. So the colleges that enroll these students in these programs they either know that they're not likely to be successful or they ought to know because they've had hundreds of students like them come through and, you know, either not complete or not graduate into a good, a good job. The students themselves have no earthly idea. So you have this, it's like asym, it's asymmetric information. The analogy is kind of like the used car market, right? The used car dealer knows pretty well the history of that used car, but the, the consumer has no idea. So we have, to, you know, we've, we have disclosure laws, right? So, you know, one, one way to address that is kind of what the Biden administration is proposing, which is there's gainful employment rules where in a year's time, if you want to enroll in a master's degree program, at say NYU, you may be required to sign a, a waiver saying you've you've seen the the numbers and you know they don't pencil out, but you're still enrolling anyway. Notably, that there's not going to be a requirement for bachelor's degrees. That's sort of the the bargain that was appears to have been struck. One of the great sliding doors moments for higher education watchers was when Obama tried to do the ranking and rating system for undergraduate institutions, and the universities had a fit. I think that would have been a good step towards some level of transparency and accountability, it alone wouldn't have done it, but it would have been a step in the direction of trying to understand, are these universities a good value add? And how, how do we compare the ROI for one university versus another? You know? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that if we had as many large apprenticeship programs across the economy as we have colleges and universities, if we had as many apprentice jobs as we have seats in freshman classes across the country every year, we'd be in a very different place. We'd be in a place where a high school, a graduating high school student could sit with her guidance counselor and look at the six or 10 universities that she's interested in, but an equal number of earn and learn opportunities. And obviously those earn and learn opportunities are lower risk, right? You're not paying tuition, you're not going to debt, you're earning money. And the worst case scenario is uh, you don't like what you're doing and you decide to go do something else after a couple of years. So there will be millions of young people who will be much better off with millions of earn and learn opportunities as opposed to simply college. And it's not just four years. You know, the students we most care about are taking six or more years to complete a degree. And that's six years that they're not working full time, probably. Now, uh, you talk about in your book that not only do we need the government to invest in apprenticeships at a much, much larger scale, but we also it seems would would need them to pare back some of the regulation that's preventing employers from using apprenticeship programs. You mind talking a little bit about some of the barriers right now? Yeah. Well, the problem is that apprenticeship right now, as, as we said at the outset, it's, it's mostly the province of the construction trades. And so there are all of these requirements in registering and running an apprenticeship program that sort of come out of those, those areas where you can imagine you don't necessarily need the same safety guidelines if you're a Salesforce admin as if you're a welder uh, or an electrician. So uh, we need to streamline the registration process for 21st century new collar apprenticeships. And the reality is that there are only a couple things 
that you should be required to demonstrate in order to register your uh, your program and qualify for for funding. One that it's a good job, right? It's a full time job that you're being paid, you know, the equivalent of you know fifty thousand a year or more. That there is built in training, real training that's occurring as part of the program. That there's a wage escalator that as you become more productive, your pay will go up. And that there are career pathways out of it. It's not a dead end job, right? You're not working as a you know cashier in a store. You're able to progress up with the skills that you've learned. And in my mind, if you can demonstrate those things, you should be able to register your program and you should qualify for funding. Again, back with the funding today, if you jump through the you know hundreds of pages of the application to register your program, you finally get that done. There's no funding that flows with that. Right. You're just allowed to do it. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could do it without it, right? You just, it's not, you can't call it a registered apprenticeship program. I think the only real difference is that the Department of Labor gives you a, a seal or something that you can distribute to your, your apprentices that they can put on their resumes or LinkedIn profile, but that's pretty much it. Now you've written a lot about higher education generally, So I want to broaden it out for a second here. Let's say I'm Mackenzie Bezos, right? We're having a conversation. I'm like, look, Ryan, I want you to start a university, a new university. And I'm going to endow it with the strength of the Princeton endowment, what Malcolm Gladwell calls the perpetual motion machine of Princeton. What does it look like if, if Ryan Craig is creating a new university? That's a good question. So I would say that the first thing, what we lack in this country is uh, elite caliber university that is able to serve not just tens of thousands of students, but hundreds of thousands of students. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be uh, online. I think it's probably that the answer is like a hybrid uh, university where you have students sort of coming in and going out. And part of what they're going out to do is not just learning remotely, but formal work experience. So it's an integrated sort of, it's, I would say it's a hybrid, elite hybrid work college of sorts where everyone is graduating with multiple paid in-field internships. That's the answer. Given the way technology is going, we're going to need to be able to graduate students not only with the sort of core cognitive skills, not only with the digital skills and business and role knowledge, but with real relevant work experience, or they're not going to be successful. And if someone handed me $40 billion, I could probably do that. It absolutely could be done. But again, the elite schools, they don't suffer any ramifications for failing to expand their enrollment. In fact, I think Harvard's enrollment is uh, undergraduate enrollment is almost exactly what it was 40 years ago. That's incredible. And if you're doing your own university, let's talk some structural stuff. Like, is it four years do you have majors? Like, what would your majors be if you had such a thing as majors or concentrations? I'm putting you on the spot here, by the way. No, I, I love it. I love it. So I think the key is to combine a broad-based undergraduate education, at least in the first year, with, you know, I think major is probably the wrong term because major is aligned to the departmental structure that is sort of the province of uh, academics. I think we need to think about uh, careers and what that good first job is going to be. So you're combining that sort of cognitive skill, problem solving, critical thinking, building general education with a decision to, I'm going to go into a pathway that is going to lead me to a good first job, including obviously multiple paid internships along the way in that field. So I think the major is a sort of relic of the 20th century. And it's sort of the a relic of how we've encyclopedically organized knowledge in the past. But it's not just about knowledge. Uh, This is about economic mobility. And so we need to make sure that graduates are prepared 
for the jobs that are on offer. And again, it can't be done. There's nothing, you know, people often will mistake what I say saying, you know, you're calling for the death of the humanities and liberal arts. And absolutely not. I mean, I was a liberal arts major myself. I hope my kids do it as well. But you have to combine the liberal arts with career discovery and real job skills. And the fact that we don't, I think, is is a function of the fact that it's you know, hard to do and faculty don't like doing new things. But you absolutely can combine you know, data skills, uh, platform skills in the context of any course. Yeah. And I wonder what you think about you know, we face a huge shortage of critical jobs like doctors and nurses. And there's also just this runaway student debt and cost issues that we have in this country right now due to this sort of, you know, inflation uh, on higher education and how it's outpaced, you know, almost any other service or good in this country over the past few decades. And I wonder whether we as a country, you know, my dad graduated from medical school in India at 21 or 22, right? I'm wondering whether we as a country would should consider allowing kids to go. And medicine, kids don't become useful doctors until way late, and it's burning people out in the profession. Well, I should say that medicine is actually the one field where we have built-in apprenticeship. Well, what I'm saying is, like, why not get there faster? Like, why not let kids go to medical school either out of high school, like a lot of other countries do, or maybe say, all right, you can get into a special program. It's a five-year medical school program, and that first year just in terms that the prerequisites you have, you're set on those prerequisites, you know? Well, who's going to pay the missing tuition? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Look, there's not a good reason. I mean, yes, obviously someone who's had four years of college is probably going to be a more mature, at least if not, you know, better generally educated physician than someone who's had, you know, just one or two years of sort of a general or undergraduate education experience. That's true. Does that mean that they're not qualified to be a doctor? Absolutely not. Uh, does that mean that they can't get that uh, over the course of their professional development once they're earning? Can they also learn? Absolutely, they can. But you know, the system we have is is you you understand why it evolved the way it did. The, the difference is that the economy that we're dealing with now, the the workforce, the employers, and their needs are just very different uh, than they were even you know twenty years ago. In my book, I talk about how. I think colleges are doing as good a job as they've ever done at equipping students for the good jobs of the 20th century. But their employers are looking for that, plus digital skills, platform skills, business knowledge, role knowledge, and students, graduating students today get almost none of that. And as a result, you know, let alone, and obviously not, no, no relevant work experience. And as a result, you know, we've got this crisis of student debt and, you know, 40% of graduating students are underemployed. And you talk about platform skills a few times in this interview, and I think this is a good place to zero in on. So this is particularly important in the age of artificial intelligence. And I think what a lot of our listeners are struggling with right now is that they have tremendous anxiety about both their kids and themselves in terms of whatever path they're on or want to be on. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what those professions are going to look like in the future and even how they're being changed right now. You mentioned like making PowerPoints or whatever, but like, you know, if you're a graphic design artist, your world is fundamentally changed. If you're somebody who does data management, obviously fundamentally changed if you design websites or whatever. But even if you're an editor, things like Grammarly, I mean, you can go on and on and on. Even if you're a radiologist now, there's, you know, some studies coming out showing that. AI is better at detecting certain pancreatic cancer risk than a radiologist is. What's the best broad-based advice you could give people and how to think about 
how to manage this transitory period of AI, like kind of across different domains, like how people should think about their careers right now? Well, look, I think the, I think the key is get as much work experience as soon as you can. And I'm not talking about, you know, going to work at Chipotle, although there are lots of, you know, high school students and teens who'd be well served to gain those sort of, you know, social skills, general work skills. But, you know, if you can, if you can find your way into a professional position at the age of 18 or the age of 20 or 22, that is something you should do because you're going to gain relevant skills in the course of that work. And there will probably be technical skills that you'll gain uh, as well. You certainly gain insights as to what you like to do and what you don't like to do. I think the big, the big mistake we've made is over the last you know, 30 plus years is that we have this orthodoxy that, you know, the only pathway goes high school to college, then work. And you have millions of young people who've literally never worked in a real job before graduating from college. Like, yeah, they've probably volunteered in a Costa Rican rainforest and maybe they've been like a camp counselor or something, but they've never actually worked in a real job, in a real work environment. And, you know, we see that in all kinds of surveys. Employers talk about, you know, Gen Z work skills and how they just, you know, they, they don't have these, these work skills. But again, I think getting exposure to those jobs, the, the problem coming back to the book is that we just don't have those jobs today. You know, right now, high school students are choosing between college and Chipotle. I mean, that's basically, that's it. You have college, you can go work at Chipotle. And that's it. Or influencer. Right. Or, yeah, sorry. Yes, you could be, yes, something like 40% of Gen Z believes that they can make a living either as a social media influencer or through uh, esports. Well, look, the, the ones who do it well are tremendously successful. The problem is it is as unequal a terrain as anything out there, right? Like they're, they're not wrong to want to like to see the successful people and say, that's a great life. Yeah. Like I wasn't wrong when I was uh, 10 years old to want to be a, uh, you know, NHL goalie. Do you want to be Don Mattingly? I'm Canadian. So it was, it was hockey. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Well, give us some hope at the end here. Is there anything promising? Like when I look at your book, there's like, you know, you gave, it's got Tim Ryan writing the forward. It's got Larry Hogan here, Margaret Spellins. Like where's their momentum? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of momentum here. I spent the last uh, two months running around. I've been in DC four times. I've met with Congress people. I've met with commerce, labor, uh, education. This is one area where I think we have bipartisan agreement. Republicans are obviously in favor of anything that's an alternative to college. Yeah. They hate college. Yeah. You could build on that. Yeah. And this should be a a real winner for Democrats who are at risk of being pigeonholed as the party of the college elite. So, you know, all the conversations we're having are extremely positive. There's obviously, you know, work to do. It's not easy to make a major policy change or to find, you know, hundreds of millions, let alone billions of dollars for uh, earn and learn. But we've already made initial progress. California thanks in part to our work, has allocated $175 million over the next three years in what we call paper apprentice funding, which goes right to intermediaries to help build this sort of earn and learn infrastructure we're talking about. And are those intermediaries good? So, yeah, I mean, the intermediaries are, whether they're good, you and you have to be registered. So there's that quality assurance. And, and B, you have to hire the apprentice. The apprentice actually, it's like has to be a real job. So you only get paid if the apprentice is hired and trained. So, I mean, to me, there's like lots of folks on the left side of the aisle who were wary of sort of education workforce dollars going to the private sector, you know, as they like to call it, predatory for-profit companies. But this is different because this is not just training. These are people who are actually being hired. And it's not like we're paying the wages here. That's not what we're suggesting. Although other Australia did that 
during COVID and added 100,000 new apprentices over a year. But you know, all we're suggesting is that we need to reduce the friction to creating apprenticeship programs. And that means that we need to pay for the, cost, the actual cost of the training. That should be something the government's willing to pay for. And we need paper apprentice funding for the intermediaries to do the work. Every apprentice who gets hired and trained, the intermediary should get paid. And if we can do that, which is exactly what the UK and Australia did 20 years ago, we should be able to increase the number of apprentices from you know half a million today to 4 million you know, in a few years. Yeah. Imagine, I mean, this might be a crazy idea, but imagine if the US in the middle of the pandemic took some chunk of that COVID dollars and picked a few areas of the workforce that you could imagine functioning pretty well throughout the pandemic, like an EMT, right? And say like, look, a lot of people getting paid not to work, right? But if you want to get paid and get training, we're going to create 100,000 new EMTs across the country, a two-year sprint for associate nurses around the country through an apprenticeship model. You know, if we had that kind of infrastructure in place, you know? The problem is that the people who are making that policy think about this in terms of training and the way that policy would work out is it's not a job, it's a free training program. And free training programs, you know, more train and pray. Uh, What we know is that when you offer a paid job with built-in training, instead of, you know, having to sort of round up, you know, applicants, you get hundreds of applicants for every open seat in the cohort. That's the difference. And that's what apprenticeship is. Well, on that note, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody get out there and buy Apprentice Nation, an incredible book, Ryan. Thank you so much for this. And we're rooting for you. We really hope you succeed in convincing the federal government and everybody on down to embrace this model. It's really needed. Thanks, Ravi. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.